Welcome to the Cab Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. This song don't give a damn. damn. If the rhymes don't fit with the DJ, quit. Yeah. This song don't give a damn. damn. You can't sing or dance to it, can't romance to it. This song ain't arrogant. Uh. If you don't try and buy it, or if your radio denies it, don't care about what, who got, what's cool on TV, or what spots hot, I forgot. Yeah. I ain't mad at evolution. For revolution, get up. Enough is enough. Hey, somebody stand up. Come on, get up. Stand up. Get up. Stand up. Get up. Stand up. All right, Sai. Thanks for joining me again. Um. I guess you've had an interesting time the last few months. Um, some some people lauding your work, others heavily criticizing it. How, how are you getting on now? Um, yeah, well, thanks, Cliff, for having me. Um, yeah, it's it's been an, a really interesting time. Uh, I think you know, there's no doubt about it. I'm in the minority, um, but I think... Science is not a numbers game. It's about trying to get to the truth. So even though I may be in the minority, uh, I think there's some important evidence that I keep coming back to. And I think it's important that this evidence gets out into the public domain. I've you know, being critical of the government strategy of eliminating COVID-19. I think it's it's a very unlikely strategy to succeed. And I think when you subject it to cost-benefit analysis, it looks uh, very unfavorable consider, uh, compared to other things one might choose to do with one's money to improve health in this country. And uh, the other concern I have is for a vaccine. The elimination strategy in itself is a very low probability of uh, sustainable success in my view. Uh, I think we were very lucky to get away with the, the, the 100 days of no COVID cases. And I think New Zealand has done some things very well in its response to COVID. But in terms of the long term, we need to think about where does the strategy take us and uh, forever closed or at least firmly restricted travel, uh, the threat of ongoing lockdowns and the financial implications of those. Uh, to be honest, I find them quite frightening as a New Zealander to be uh, in a country where that is the uh, government's current policy. Yeah, um, and I think it's prudent, you know, right at the outset, given what you've just said, to just sort of make that distinction and clarify between legitimate dissenting academics like yourself and you know, maybe people who we, we might say are on the lunatic fringe who are, you know, really taking these conspiracy theories to heart, you know, the 5Gs and, um, you know, the sort of this being sort of co-opted by a fairly strong anti-science, um, anti-vax movement. But in reality, 
they are so separate from what basically all legitimate academics are talking about, you would actually be closer to the government position than many of them, right? In some respects. I mean, you're not, you're certainly not saying that this doesn't exist or it's a conspiracy or it's been engineered by Bill Gates to depopulate the world, any of that crazy stuff. So I think it's disingenuous when critics of you and others are placing you in the same bundle as those people, because then that's just a way to, to my mind to sort of squash, squash debate. Yeah. Well, uh, look, I uh, strongly believe that some vaccines have been useful. We no longer have the threat of polio in New Zealand and that, you know, that was a big thing uh, just a couple of generations ago. And, you know, I had teachers that were affected by polio and now we, we simply don't have it. And that is due, uh, in my view, uh, to the vaccine. So I'm certainly not anti-vaccine. Sorry. Um, so, but what I am... Uh, concerned about is over optimism about vaccines and that's something that I've seen in the medical community for some time. For example, the flu vaccine is often touted as a very effective strategy for reducing flu every year uh, and actually if you look at the evidence in the Cochrane reviews you see that the the benefits of the vaccine are way overblown and it's much more highly promoted than uh, really the evidence suggests. Other vaccines, MMR, uh, you know, it's very clear during the measles epidemic that the majority of cases were unvaccinated people and that strongly suggests that measles is a very effective vaccine. So, uh, just like everything, the truth is somewhere in between here, but we, uh, I, I think, and, but what mm. concerns me is a government policy, which is strongly predicated on a vaccine coming, a vaccine that we don't have. We've had coronaviruses, we've had severe coronaviruses with us for over a decade, and we don't We've had we've known about coronaviruses for 40 years, uh, and we've never had a vaccine. And yet, the government policy on its website is talking about a vaccine, an effective vaccine, in the next two years. We know that vaccines are not especially effective for elderly people. There's a major problem in the vaccine community for uh, called immunosenescence, which occurs in frail elderly people, and uh, they are the target group for protecting against COVID-19. And so you've got yeah. these insurmountable barriers. And although I'd love us to get through those barriers, I just know that the probability of doing that is very low. And we know other vaccines take the, the gold record in terms of timelines for vaccine development is for mumps. And uh, that was four years. Yeah. Most are 10. Uh, so we now have immunologists telling us, and these are guys who've devoted their whole lives to vaccines, uh, telling us that it's unrealistic. And so 
you know, at, at some point we need to ask these questions. How realistic are these policies? And these are in black and white on the government website and no one seems to be asking the hard questions here. Well, that, that's been, I guess, one of my biggest concerns around this because I'm, I'm fairly orthodox, you know, I'm fairly well in the middle. I, I, I like to think I'm pretty pragmatic. On balance, I'm pro-vaccine um, because most of them work incredibly effectively. Uh, you know, all those sorts of things. So I would say that I'm relatively conservative with respect to a lot of my views around health. But one of the worrying things for me has been this sort of, it's almost as if there's this group think that's occurred whereby if there are people trying to have legitimate conversations around this and, and you know, speaking to the numbers and asking questions about the longer term implications, they're, they're shut down or, you know, they're, they're attacked ad hominem, which I think, you know, is, to, to me, academic debate is sacrosanct, and you don't indulge in those academic or logical fallacies if you, if you can avoid it. Um, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about that, because I think it's really important. I really want to get into the numbers as well, but do you believe that this situation has led to to some academic suppression of, you know, maybe yourself or other academics, people um, in academia trying to sort of silence academics who are asking these questions? Well, yeah, we've, we've certainly experienced that. Uh, senior colleagues have told us not to speak up. And, and, and just uh, to be I clear think... for people listening, that, that's illegal, right? Well, as an academic under the Education Act, you have a right to free speech within your uh, within your academic specialty. So as long as you stay within your lane, right. uh, you are entitled to share your opinions. And I think we would agree that that is a hallmark of modern democracy, right? That's an important thing to have both academic freedoms and press freedoms. And I don't know because there, there is no hard evidence that I have access to, but I've certainly heard from a number of people, including people in government, that there have been some, I guess to put it lightly, some pressure exerted on certain media outlets to maybe promote or sync various stories. Uh, is, is that something that you can speak to as well? Uh, well, I, I, I really, you know, one of the interesting issues that's happened uh, during this, this unusual time is some conversations that I've had with journalists. And I've had several conversations for over an hour with journalists, uh, kind of uh, going over the, the evidence that I've presented that COVID-19 has been overblown, that some of the claims have been exaggerated, and uh, particularly the mortality claims um, and infection fatality rates, for example. And the journalists kind of tell me, why, I'm, why are you not doing more? <laughs> and I kind of giggle at that point because I feel like I've been doing as much as I can. <laughs> and um, and I uh, then look at what some of the stories have been. And 
that come out from the same journalists that I've had the conversations with, and, and they're generally suppressing the evidence that I'm presenting. Yeah. So I think you know, one thing I've become aware of is the the sort of Twitterati um, and the, uh, the response that you get from sharing your opinions on social media and how that can lead to self-censorship. And I think that absolutely that's a thing. I actually don't think there's a huge government conspiracy around this. No. Uh, I think it's, you know, that there has been this very dominant story and it's tapped into certain things that we'd all like to see achieved. Like we'd like to see New Zealand lead the world and we would like to see the virus eliminated. We all would. I mean, I would. But we also have to ask ourselves at the same time, how realistic is that and where does it lead us? Yeah. And are the costs of what are the costs of this strategy? How likely is it to succeed? And is it going to be overall uh, beneficial in the long term? And to me, the evidence is strongly pointing that that's not the case. Yeah, and I think the... Um... You know, the questions around government overreach, I think we also need to make a couple of things clear. And, you know, I've had people say to me, well, a lot of the narrative coming out from media as a ubiquitous sort of thing is actually more right leaning. And so it's more sort of pro national, let's say. Um, and, and I think that's true, but that doesn't mean that there is not also potentially some suppression of things that are contra to what people see as in the public good. And so both those things can exist at the same time. And I'd also like to make clear from my point of view, at least, and I'm not speaking for you here, but from my point of view, I don't see this as a partisan issue. And the, the reason being that I'm a person who's concerned about government overreach, not because of what I think will happen here, but just because of the, the possibilities that could occur. And for anyone to look for examples of that, we can see, um, for example, in Eastern Europe, COVID has been used as an excuse to further concentrate and persecute Romani populations in Eastern Europe. We know that COVID is being used in China as a sort of mask for further suppressing the Uyghur minority there as well. And so it's not as if we don't have examples right now and also examples in history where certain things can be enacted and then maybe subsequently they end up being expedient for maybe less benevolent governments. You know, uh, it, it was in many respects, fairly benevolent US presidents who enacted, um, or who really started to overuse executive power. And then maybe leaders who came in afterwards would use that for maybe more nefarious purposes. So I don't want to go down the rabbit hole there. I just think we need to be cautious enough to not just always have that tendency to fall into line without having those checks and balances. And to my mind, the checks and balances are press freedoms and academic freedoms, academic debate. So Absolutely, Cliff. Look, I, I, I want to stay away from the politics of this. Uh, I think that's a whole other area. My area really is the science. And yeah. the, uh, the science is the justification for the policies. And from... So my viewpoint really is that 
the science doesn't justify the policy and uh, or at least the policy has a very very low likelihood of success and so that's that's the argument that I'm pushing I mean in terms of government overreach I think you know I'm, I'm legitimately concerned about that as you are but it's not really my area of speciality. Fair enough. And I'm probably, I, I, because I'm not currently employed by any academic institution, I guess I have the freedom to say whatever the hell I want, which is kind of nice. But um, let, let's get into the numbers a little bit because that's the most important thing. Now, it, it seems to me that there is a soft walking back of the elimination strategy anyway, although it's not being overtly specified. I mean, the fact that we have you know, albeit small, but active community transmission here, and yet the level was still downgraded. Um, you know, it does seem to me like there is a bit of a walking back. Do, do you believe that's occurring? And obviously you, you don't believe that elimination is a viable strategy anyway. So do you think that the government is starting to walk back that position now? I, I think it's very hard for me to second guess what the government is doing. It's certainly... I think it has, the government has realized that the costs of lockdown in pursuit of elimination are astronomical and that the mm. cost benefit analysis that, you know, even the government's done itself, if you look at the Productivity Commission report, uh, about 95 to 1, and that's the government's own advisors. <laughs> and I think that's, that's the benefits uh, are quite generous in, in that yeah. document. Uh, so I think there's definitely been talk of avoidance of ongoing lockdowns, but in terms of strategy uh, of elimination, it still seems to be an overarching policy. It's been talked about from the Prime Minister down, it's still on the government website. Uh, the border strategy is certainly uh, related, you know, ha has that in mind. Uh, and, um, you know, all the top government advisors are still talking about elimination. So to me, that is a critical issue because, it, you know, although it would be nice to eliminate the virus, you know, we have to think about the downsides. We've spent $50 billion in New Zealand so far. Yeah. We have to ask ourselves, where's that 50, how, how are we going to pay that $50 billion back? Yeah. Okay, so let, let's, let's look into how things have changed a little bit because that's obviously, you know, one of the most important things. We need to constantly reevaluate the evidence. When this started emerging, there were some pretty high numbers thrown around, particularly for case fatality rates. And, you know, I'd like to talk about infection fatality rates as well, but starting with CFR, originally from memory, people were talking about even 6 or 8% CFR, and it's obviously a lot lower than that now. I think based on the latest data that I was looking at from Oxford and the, um, the data compiled by OWID, um, we're looking at on confirmed cases versus confirmed deaths, it's, it's around 3-odd percent, right, in terms of CFR. Is that relatively accurate? 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe so. It varies very widely between countries. I actually made an app, which I think is not working now. Um, I need to put some attention to it. But uh, you, you see an incredible variation in terms of uh, case fatality rate by country. And it seems to be strongly associated with... Uh, with testing rates and uh, various other country factors like GDP, um, right. wealth of a country. So it's very hard to say that there's one case fatality rate that uh, you can you can generalize to a whole country. There, there is such a wide spectrum. So given yes. that, have you done any modeling on what the the, inf the infection fatality rate might actually be. And so for people listening who don't understand the difference, obviously the case fatality rate is the confirmed cases versus confirmed deaths, right? Whereas the infection fatality rate would be an estimation of its actual fatality because there's going to be a lot of asymptomatic cases or, or cases that aren't picked up. Yes, well, I mean, that's been an interesting story in itself because we've had antibody tests suppressed in New Zealand. We haven't done any antibody tests, to my knowledge. I think there might be one study happening down in, in Southland. Uh, so antibody tests, which is the body's response to the virus, uh, give us a totally different picture to the swab test that we're doing uh, by sticking a swab up the nose. And uh, so the, the nose swab test just tests for the presence of RNA of the virus. You know, it may be active, it may be, the body may be on top of the virus, um, but it, it's only if the virus is present at that particular time. Whereas antibody tests right. tend to hang around a bit longer if you've uh, had the virus in the past. So they give an idea of the spread of the virus. And, and did, did you see that uh, study? I think it was just reported today where they were noticing um, antibodies much longer than had previously been thought. So we're sort of looking at four to six months post-infection. Yeah, there's, there's a bit of a complicated picture with antibodies. Uh, with many other standard viral infections in medicine, antibodies are almost a universal feature of infection. And um, they tend to stay with you lifelong, but for COVID, they seem to be time limited. So it looks like antibodies, which give us an idea of how widespread the virus has been, are a likely underestimate because after a few months, uh, you lose them. Uh, so, but anyway, with with that in mind, that these are underestimates, and, and the T cell. Uh, research from the immunologist is showing that there's other responses, uh, immune responses to the virus that show that it's it's much more widespread than we've previously appreciated. Uh, so given all that, uh, looking at the antibody responses, uh, John Ioannidis, uh, probably one of the most cited epidemiologists of all time, has, has put out a preprint and he's collected all the case fatality, uh, all the uh, cases, uh, deaths, um, serology results, and adjusted to estimate a serology-adjusted infection fatality rate. 
And he's come up with a figure of 0.2 as the median, 0.2%. So that's about two in a thousand. Uh, when we compare that to uh, influenza, it's it's around about one in a thousand. So uh, it's it looks like it's it's a bit more serious than uh, seasonal flu, but but not that much more serious. And and certainly putting that information together, looking at mortality statistics, you've seen spikes in overall mortality in, in some countries, not in all heavily hit countries. When you look at the age distribution of deaths, you don't see in New Zealand, you see no difference between the age distribution of deaths with COVID and the age distribution of deaths uh, for any other cause uh, in the year before. So you see that the virus... And two years before is interesting from what I was looking at. Oh, okay. Because 2018 seemed to be a pretty bad year for mortality. And so a lot of people are comparing to 2020 to two, uh, 2019. But in a lot of countries, it's it's actually pretty close to 2018. Right. And I'm not okay. sure whether that was because it was a bad flu season or whatever. But um, yeah, it's just interesting eyeballing the numbers because it's sort of, it doesn't seem to make sense. Because as you say, there was there was a spike. And I imagine that was also, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I imagine if that's also because this is more sort of transmissible, right? It's got a higher um, R number than influenza. So you would expect yeah. to see more people infected more quickly. And therefore it's almost like there's a, a, a surge in mortality, but not necessarily a greater increase or a markedly greater increase over, over a temporal period. Would, would, would that be fair? Yes, yeah, I think that's that's the pattern that we're seeing. Um, I, so, for example, if you read the uh, press, you'll see that Sweden has had a one in 150-year spike in overall mortality, and that looks alarming. But if you uh, look at overall counts of deaths over the first uh, seven, eight months of uh, 2020 in Sweden, you'll see that it's no more per capita than 2015. So this phenomenon is what we call displaced mortality in, in epidemiology. And I think, you know, as time goes on and we compare the total numbers of deaths, uh, we're going to see more and more evidence that what we're seeing is displaced mortality rather than, uh, which suggests very few years of life lost from COVID. And, and that would, um, that would mesh with the, the, the sort of estimated CFR for let's say over 80s at the moment, which I think from memory was around 10% as compared to, actuary data which shows that over 80 your likelihood of dying in a year is about 16 percent yeah well i think one of the best analyses i've seen from that is, is david spiegelholter's analysis where he he shows that and this was pretty early on before we had antibodies or anything uh we were just looking at uh pcr positive cases uh, uh deaths divided by pcr positive cases and he showed that the mortality rate by age was about the same as your annual mortality rate. Uh, so that he 
uh, summarized it by saying that having COVID is like squeezing your annual mortality rate into two weeks where you have the virus and may recover. Uh, and he actually said that's probably a vast overestimate of the importance of COVID because the COVID deaths have been people who've generally been much more, uh, have had higher comorbidity than the average population of somebody at the same age. So uh, that gives you a clue as to how important this disease is in terms of shortening life. Mm. Uh, as a worst case scenario and all the information that we're getting recently with antibodies and T-cell tests is that even that is an overestimate. So that's also in some respects a good rationale for the idea of a mitigation strategy and flattening the curve, right? Because if we, if we did, let's say, com compress mortality for certain groups into a very short period of time, there's hospital surge and that's going to overwhelm capacity, right? Yeah, well, I think that's uh, the message I'm trying to convey is that we need to be less obsessed with the counts of cases or infections. I think cases is kind of a misnomer because we know the CDC is talking about 40% of uh, people testing positive not having symptoms. It's, the proportion in New Zealand is much lower because we're only testing people who have symptoms. Right, but, of course. Uh, uh, <clears throat> so we, you know, these are very, very sensitive tests. We know that if you stick a swab up people's nose and test for a bunch of viruses, it's, it's almost universal if you test long enough and hard enough. Uh, I think studies have shown, longitudinal studies have shown that about two thirds of people, if you test them every week for uh, a couple of years, they're going to show a PCR positive test for a virus. Um, so what we need to think about is, is what you're saying, you know, what, what are the health implications of this? How many people is it sending to hospital? How many people is it sending to ICU? What's, what are the uh, mortality statistics? And we know that hospital services and intensive care services have never been stretched in this country um, by COVID-19 uh, cases and yeah. so that's where i think the the focus and the attention should be we know now that the hospital that health services can adapt there is capacity in health services you know you can cancel elective surgery and you've all of a sudden got a ton more beds uh, that you can rustle up some ventilators from uh elsewhere in the country um that the country has enough healthcare services to deal with this crisis. So one of the criticisms of the, the sort of mitigation strategy that you've proposed is that there may be longer term complications from, from COVID, um, you know, reductions in cognition and, you know, fatigue and all sorts of various longer term complications, maybe some effects on the cardiovascular system. I, I wonder how, how, I mean, that, that threat appears to be real based on some case studies, but I wonder how 
what the effect of that is, what the magnitude of that effect is, because we do know that, you know, viral illnesses do cause long-term complications. You know, we've certainly seen that in research on influenza. We've, uh, we know of the post-viral effects of things like Epstein-Barr virus. So with respect to maybe similar or other viral infections, how real do you think that long-term effect of COVID is? And I guess there's not enough data at this stage to really say unequivocally, but what's your sort of sense around that? Yeah, well, I, I, I think that is something that we need to watch and, and look for. But as you say, you know, it's not unusual to get long-term fatigue and long-term symptoms after a viral infection. And I think, you know, we're early in the... Uh, there's been a lot of excitement about rare complications of COVID-19 and they've so myocarditis and that sort of thing. But if you look at the details on that, there are a handful of cases. This is not, um, you know, uh, this is not the majority of cases by any means. So it's just a matter of keeping in perspective. Uh, I think we're all learn still learning a lot about the virus, about what, uh, is important and certainly been stories about people having long-term complications but we, we as an epidemiologist I, I don't think there's enough information out there to tell me how common these are and the uh, you introduced it by by saying a criticism of the mitigation strategy well the elimination strategy uh, it, it you know, it, even if we say we're going to eliminate this virus, it doesn't mean that long term that's going to be effective and that we're going to be able to mitigate some of these complications. You know, there's wildly different uh, assessments of how effective lockdowns are. And yeah, you look between countries and there's a paper in Lancet e-medicine which shows virtually no benefit at all um, yeah. from comparing countries that locked down with those that didn't. So, you know... <laughs> so, you know, I'm no epidemiologist. I'm no biostatistician, but I wanted to eyeball the numbers myself. And so I downloaded all that data and um, just ran it, you know, through our very basic sort of iteration of R as well. And I was surprised myself because I thought maybe there wouldn't be a strong association, but there was kind of, there was, there was nothing. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's, that's... It, even as someone who's not, you know, anywhere near your level, just from a pragmatic point of view, I would think that given the, the amount of lockdowns that have occurred over a long enough period of time with large enough numbers, you would expect to see something. Yeah, well, there's different threads of evidence here, Cliff. You know, you've got the between-country evidence, which I think you're looking at. And you've also, I think, actually stronger evidence, really, is the within-country evidence. So I looked, right. I compared the states in the United States. That's quite a good comparator, I think, because you've got at least what you hope is relatively similar ways of recording uh, cases and deaths and ascertainment of cases and deaths within the country and 
if you compare states that did lock down with states that don't, and I've got the data there that's live updating every day, and I look at the regression plane, and you know, if you see a strong relationship with this plane, you you think there's a relationship. What I've observed in the United States comparing lockdown and no lockdown, is so on average, there's no difference in terms of cases or deaths per capita. Uh, <laughs> so that is not strong evidence, in my view, that lockdowns work. Yet, the you know, there's almost a you, questioning that idea in New Zealand is, uh, you know, you almost get burnt at the stake. I, um, w when I was practicing num numbers and talking with some friends, uh, a couple of them said to me, yeah, but you're, you're looking at all these various countries and, or, you know, places within the U S for example, and the, the borders are so porous that it, it doesn't really mean anything. Right. Because people can, get through. So it kind of homogenizes it a little bit. Anyway, this was the sort of the idea. So I did a little sub analysis just for myself, looking at just country, just Island nations, basically. So states that had no contiguous borders with any other country. And it, it actually looked worse for those countries <laughs> that the association was, was weaker. So um, that sort of set some, some red flags for me, but I mean, I, I guess at the end of the day, no one is saying that, well, we just shouldn't do anything. We should just, you know, throw people under the bus. Uh, I, I sort of inferred from what you've said that we do need to continue to readjust the numbers. We need to be, you know, continuing to look at any long-term implications, but we also need to be looking at just basically the cost of benefit analysis and you know, the longer term cost of benefit analysis for society, but also for those most at risk individuals. Because, you know, knowing you personally and the type of person you are, I found it quite offensive when people were saying, well, Simon Thornley's just about the money. Because you're probably one of the least about the money kind of people I know, right? I understood that a lot of your work was geared towards the longer term implications for those people most at risk because a long term economic downturn um, or, or not taking appropriate measures to really look at this pragmatically is probably going to adversely affect those most at risk, right? Particularly those in the Māori and Pacific communities and people at um, more risk of socioeconomic harm. Yeah, well, uh, my whole career has been dedicated to preserving life. And, but, you know, we, we have to realize that medical science and intervention and things that we think are working don't always have the effects that we assume. And uh, so I've seen a lot uh, in the government policy about lockdown and elimination being a pro-equity uh, approach and that, you know, Māori and Pacific people will be... Uh, badly affected if the virus gets out. It's kind of unusual since their age demographic is, is much uh, younger than, on average, than, than European populations. Certainly they do have cardiometabolic risk factors uh, that are higher than European populations. Uh, but anyway, you know, what we've seen is that 
you know, throughout the lockdowns, uh, we've seen food banks in South Auckland uh, have um, demand outstrip supply. Um, we've seen uh, lots of people go on the benefit and, you know, jobs, job losses in the hospitality and tourism sectors. Um, so we've got to keep an eye on, you know, whether our interventions are actually doing what we think they are doing. Yeah. My guess is that overall the lockdowns are not going to be pro equity um, and that they're actually going to hit the poorest New Zealanders hardest. And unfortunately, for us, you know, um, Maori and Pacific people uh, tend to be into that in that group. So, I think the rhetoric of lockdowns and elimination being pro equity is just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. No, I think it's pretty clear when we look at all things combined that um, there are few people who can make money or increase wealth during an economic recession. And those are the people who have wealth. So it's probably going to widen the, the, the wealth inequality and the wealth gap in New Zealand. Um, I, I want to shift focus just a little bit because I know that you're relatively short on time. Um, I, I wanted to ask you just very briefly about masks because to my mind, it seems as if masks are a, a simple sort of relatively low cost intervention that can help to prevent viral transmission. I think we, we sort of know that, we, we know enough about that given that, you know, the previous studies that have been done on other coronaviruses and influenza viruses and things like that. Um, but I, I think I remember you saying at one point that there wasn't that strong an association between mask usage and the, the cases in a country. So what, what's your position on masks? Do you agree with them being a, a good intervention at this time? Well, I think you're right there, Cliff, on one point, is that uh, the costs of wearing masks are much lower than some other interventions that might be considered, such as lockdowns. Uh, uh, so that's that's one factor to be considered. But the effect of, of, of the masks is interesting because, you know, early in the pandemic, Ashley Bloomfield and all the infectious disease kind of people saying masks are ineffective, don't use them. And there's good trial evidence, which is generally considered top shelf evidence in epidemiology uh, to support that. And, you know, people were doing studies with the optimistic frame in mind that it was going to prevent family transmission of influenza, that handing out masks were going to do that, but they didn't show a difference. And so now uh, the... Um, there's been a total flip-flop by the government to say, now we're into masks. Public transport? Yeah, I, I can see the, the rationale. It's a, quite a confined space. There's a few observational studies in aircraft where masks have been useful in terms of preventing H1N1. So I can see the rationale there, but in terms of overall, is this likely to dent the epidemic, dent the transmission. You know, I've seen people throw at me case studies of transmission on public transport, so therefore masks must be useful. But just because it occurs in public transport doesn't mean that it's going to be prevented by wearing a mask. 
So, uh, yeah, I, I, the best evidence that I have is that they're not especially effective. Right. Okay. I was sort of basing my, my belief, it might be naive, but more so on um, sort of indicative evidence of other cold and flu-like viruses and, you know, studies where they'd, they'd looked at the, the transmission through the mask material itself to sort of look at that as an indication of whether there is um, some suppression there of viral transmission. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's... well, I think the, the, I mean, there's a plausible mechanism, isn't there? But I, I guess the, the lesson of epidemiology is that uh, sometimes the plausible mechanisms uh, don't turn out into health benefit. And, you know, the best way we can test these hypotheses related to these biological mechanisms is, is through trials and the trials, you know, even though the benefits of, um, you know, uh, are, you know, clearly make sense from a biological point of view, the, the numbers unfortunately just don't support them. Um, you know, the, the observational studies, yes, there's a, there's a whole range of observational studies that you can find that support wearing masks but in epidemiology we have this sort of idea of a hierarchy and generally we want to go to the top shelf and go to the best evidence rather than uh, just pick and choose whatever you know so would it be fair to summarize that to say you don't believe that it's necessarily going to markedly affect transmission, but there's not necessarily a negative to wearing them. So would a, could a prudential approach be to just wear a mask because it's unlikely to cause any sort of negative outcome? Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's a reasonable viewpoint, but, uh, you know, um, do, should we create this? Uh, I think the downside of wearing masks is that they perpetuate the fear of the virus, right? Um, which, to me, is you know the evidence that I've pointed to is not justified. So, if we all yeah. mass mask, it, it perpetuates this irrational fear. Well, that that's a discussion I had with someone the other day. I, I was sort of positing that I think that there are going to be some positive outcomes from this, and that we've we've probably finally been forced to actually take some action against the pandemic because previously with like SARS-1 and MERS and things like that, they, they kind of burnt themselves out. Right. So we didn't necessarily get to this point, but any of us with an interest in public health have known forever. I mean, I was talking about this with mates 20 years ago that there is going to be a serious viral pandemic. We all thought it was going to be an influenza pandemic as most people did. Um, but there was going to be one, there are going to be others. And so maybe this has at least helped to, to start to formulate some, some better strategies, but obviously we want them to be the right strategies. So with that in mind right now, with this particular pandemic, what do you think are um, just the sort of bullet points of what you believe are the things we should be doing now to, to mitigate the effect of this virus? Well, I think the flattening the curve idea was a good one that we really what did want to protect the hospitals that we didn't want to see overwhelmed ICUs and 
part of that was segregating patients. So, and I think New Zealand did that particularly well. They set up areas in the hospital for COVID and other areas that were non-COVID so that COVID wouldn't spread through uh, to vulnerable people. And, uh, and particularly where the concentration of the virus is likely to be very high. So, and I think, you know, in terms of avoiding disastrous effects or policies that other countries did in terms of sending uh, convalescing COVID patients back into rest homes, or using them as sort of pseudo hospitals. Um, you know, that was something that New Zealand really did well. And, and I think testing around uh, hospitals and rest homes for patients as and staff is is worthwhile, and, and I think serology would add another dimension to that. Um, but in terms of a lot of the things that we're doing, in terms of shutting down borders, uh, in terms of lockdowns, <laughs> I simply can't support that. In terms of evidence-based strategies. Uh, and I think eventually we're going to have to think about sustainable strategies that will uh, allow us to develop a immunity to the virus. I think the majority of us will eventually get the virus. We don't know in New Zealand yet. We haven't done antibody tests widespread. Um, and we certainly haven't done T-cell tests. So we need to understand where we stand as a as a community do, are we have we are, are we naive to the virus or have has it actually been through us in yeah. h1n1 uh, times it had been through us and we hadn't noticed uh, yeah. and that was what the serology survey showed one in three of us had a positive serological test to h1n1 and huh. we were still trying to stamp out the virus. Interesting. And I guess that points to a bigger issue too, in that we, we have an elephant in the room, right? We have a relatively unequal society with unequal outcomes. And that's socioeconomic, and that plays into our health system. And I've seen very few people, and very few people talking about health and metabolic health in relation to this, but to my mind, that's got to be part of the conversation going forward, because although, you know, we don't want to be saying that anything is going to be a cure for COVID, I think anyone who's pragmatic is going to say that the healthier you are and the more nutrient replete your diet is, the, the better your immune system is going to be able to respond to threats. I mean, that, that just seems to me to be a very simple thing. And it doesn't seem to be something that's being addressed or looked at for the future because, you know, th this will happen again. And I would say that we just want to have a resilient population. Absolutely, Cliff. Yeah, that's a good point. That's something that I forgot to add there is that you look at, at who's doing badly from COVID and it's uh, people who have metabolic health issues. And we know that um, one of the, greatest discoveries of my medical career is that, uh, you know, it wasn't me. It was really me just uh, tagging on to others' discoveries is that type 2 diabetes is not an irreversible disease. That um, with diet, 
you can improve your metabolic health. You can reduce your blood pressure. You can get rid of the sugar and rid of the starch and, and do much better. So, yeah, I, I think that's it's a great message in terms of preparing for a pandemic like this is that you need to optimize your uh, resilience. And part of that, boosting immune system is paying attention to what goes into your mouth. And uh, from an epidemiological perspective, the two greatest issues that we need to deal with is sugar and refined starches. And um, so it's, it's yet another reason to, um, to do something about that. I would also throw in there as a final micronutrient repletion. And the reason I say that is um, myself and many others have been heavily criticized for at the beginning of the pandemic, promoting healthy approaches to eating and mentioning some of the things that we know from other viral infections, but just for their overall sort of importance to the immune system, the importance of having those replete within the diet. Um, things like vitamin A, vitamin D, zinc in particular. And people took that to mean we were saying that those things cured COVID. But that's a completely different thing. What, what I was saying and others were saying is that these things are necessary for the immune system. We're not saying supraphysiological doses. I was pointing to the New Zealand government data, which shows that I think from memory around 20% of people are not repleted in vitamin A about 25% of people and 45% of men are not replete in zinc from diet alone. That's a massive issue because those things are critical to immune function. If you're simply not getting enough to, to meet your RDA amounts, which are probably quite low anyway, it's unlikely that you'll be able to, you know, mount adequate immune responses against things. So it's not about cures or, you know, boosting to massive levels or anything. It's simply about having a diet that supplies what the working body needs to work effectively. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, uh, Cliff. And, you know, that these that, that's all of what you said there is totally non-controversial from my point of view. That, and yet uh, it's become controversial because people <laughs> see it as, you know, that they, they see things that, People are trying to find quackery within things that aren't in any respect controversial. Well, yeah, I think something that I've noticed here is that there's been a leap to to make things sound controversial. You know, I was at a News Hub headline the other day, controversial epidemiologists is a vaccine likely four years away. Um, you know, that's something that... Uh, if you do the research, you'll find that that is actually the the uh, the gold medal <laughs> time frame, and that that hasn't been improved, uh, and that the average is actually ten years. So, um, things that um, you know, it's actually the government, dare I say it, that's coming out with the controversial time frames and the controversial policy. You know, you ask yourself, how likely is it that we eliminate this virus, given that 40% of cases are likely to be asymptomatic and not want to be tested? It's possible to transmit the virus when you're asymptomatic. 
the test is 70% sensitive at best, uh, that um, uh, that it's it's rapidly transmissible. It's 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 mm. very contagious. Um, and you, you ask yourself, have we have we eliminated a virus similar to this in the past and with these characteristics? And I can't find an example. Yeah. Well, those numbers I think put a, a very strong full stop to this little conversation, Sai, and I think people will um, have a lot to think about. So um, I just want to thank you again for having a chat, Simon. Um, whenever I'm feeling sort of unclear about numbers, I know that you're my go-to guy, and so it really helps me to clarify things. I hope that's um, both clarified some things for people listening, but also just cause people to ask some more questions and to, to take that idea that we can debate and discuss these issues without becoming ad hominem and without attacking someone, you know, because if we do that within the, the environment of free and open academic debate, I think we're going to get the best outcomes. Uh, one final question though, are you going to publish any of your findings? Uh, well, yeah, good question. I, I, I suppose you saying um, publish in an academic journal because uh, plenty written already on the COVID Plan B website. And I guess part of that's just been that such a rapidly evolving thing that um, yeah. I've had to get stuff out <laughs> that's topical. Uh, but yeah, there's a, uh, I've been invited by the British Medical Journal to uh, take part in the for and against elimination um, so I've uh, written something with a couple of co-authors on that. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we'll be looking forward to seeing that. Um, I'll, I'll wait with bated breath and, and read that in depth. <laughs> uh, but I'll let you get back to your day, so I know you're busy. So thanks for um, joining me again today. Thanks, Cliff. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. To sign up for member-only benefits, go to cliffharvey.com. Or to learn about studying to become a nutrition coach, health coach, or clinical or sports nutritionist, go to holisticperformance.institute.